Hey listener, just before this episode gets going, something went a little bit awry with the judging. So I'd like to ask you to please stay listening into the bloopers, because all is not quite as it seems. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. We're sometimes fortnightly, we're sometimes monthly. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Doing very well. The mic's going to pick up a lot of wind. It's okay. howling a gale outside. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Someone doesn't want you to record this episode. That's right, yeah. Storm clouds are gathering. The forces that be, yeah. How are you? Are you doing okay? I'm doing all right, yeah. I'm a bit I'm a bit sniffly today. Sorry to listeners if you hear sniffles. Uh, but I'm actually feeling really well. And we've just been doing a bit of judging of entries to our most recent competition. I've got to say, it gets me really excited to talk about Arkham cards in any way. So I'm feeling feeling pretty positive. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a fascinating exercise to, to go through all these cards and see what people think is, you know, is, is appropriate powered cards and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. What we thought we'd do before we dive in and talk about the entries to this competition is zoom out a little bit and take a slightly bigger picture look about evaluating cards. And just to remind you, listener, if you're not sure, this is our Blackest Friday competition that we took part in. Big shout out to Twisted Tentacle Inn, to Vase for organising this. We have an entire cycle to give away, which is the Forgotten Age. And we asked listeners to send in any player card that they designed that would work particularly well with the investigator of that faction from Forgotten Age. So if it's a Guardian card, it should work well with Leo. A Mystic card work well with Mateo, for instance. So we're going to look at some of those entries later in this episode and announce a winner. But first, yeah, as I said, I want to go bigger picture. And really, the, the first question I have for you, Peter, is how do we, or how does one, evaluate cards in Arkham Horror? So how do I evaluate cards? Is that what you're well, asking me? you? Yeah. Me? Yeah. Uh, this, is a, this is a pretty broad question you've just thrown at me, Frank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. My first thought would always to be to look for synergies. Okay. Can I think about the answer? Yeah. <laughs> I can, do, do you want me to just go into my, my philosophy for how I would rate a card? Yeah, go into yours, unless your philosophy is so out there that it won't help with <laughs> <laughs> more so I yeah. go by the the, the yeah. main colours in the art, Yeah, first exactly. of all. <laughs> you do, like the Leonardo thing, right? You measure this, this the shape, the physical shape of the characters in the art. Yeah, yeah. I look, look for yeah. particular patterns and, and recurring themes in the text. Yeah. Um, repetition of individual characters, uh, along with a few of the metrics I've designed, uh, and that lets me assign a, uh, a mark to it. And if, I mean, obviously this is a joke, but this is actually more pertinent than it might otherwise have been, given some of the treacheries in Dream Eaters. Yeah, absolutely, yes. <laughs> have taken <laughs> things that we thought we took for granted and forced us to think about them, which is very Dream Eaters. I don't want to spoil that for anyone who hasn't yet come across those treacheries, but when you come across them, it will make you think about your deck. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and it's a weird experience. It, you look at your hand in a totally different way. Mm, yes, uh, and it, it's almost arbitrary which which cards then you're able to look at and use, <laughs> which you aren't. This card's garbage. <laughs> okay, so so I guess the way I would look at cards, I hope that all stays in. By the way, Frank. Of course, yeah. Uh, the way I would look at cards, so some some cards will carry some form of action efficiency with them, mm-hmm. so that they'll let you do something you can't do with the basic actions, mm. whether that's get more clues or whatever and those kind of cards what i do is look at how often you would be able to because usually there'll be some form of restriction on on what they do yeah you can do this but but with this limitation or you have got to pay for the card and you just weigh up how often you'll be able to do it versus how much it costs you i guess so it, it, it's how far up the curve it would put me by playing it that would be my sort of yeah. prime, if it's like an economy card or an efficiency card, that would be the, the prime way I look at it. How often will I be able to, to make full use out of it? Yeah. If you want a good example, actually, of this, 
we've talked a few times recently about I've Had Worse. Hmm, yeah. And I've Had Worse 2 is potentially better value than I've Had Worse 4. Because you often play I've Had Worse 2 for a smaller amount of damage. It's not necessarily worth the extra 2 experience to have the option for 2 extra resources from I've Had Worse 4. Hmm, hmm. Well, for the same amount of XP, you can generate four resources from I've Had Worse 2 or five from I've Had Worse 4, but you can do it flexibly with the two cards and have more chance of seeing them, and you can't do it as flexibly with I've Had Worse 4 because you need to have that hit of three damage and three horror that you cancel five of or whatever it is. It's a bit trickier to trigger, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I'm, a, I'm agreeing with you. So how about you, Frank? What's, what's your... What's your jumping to mind as a way to evaluate cards for you. Yeah, the thing that's leaping out at me from what you've just started saying is that idea of comparing cards to basic actions. And certainly early in the game, that was a very useful metric because we didn't have very many cards. So it was quite easy to say, if I punch the enemy, I do one damage. But if I shoot it with the 45, I do two and I get a plus one bonus. So this card is better than the basic action. But then, of course, as the game has fleshed out its card pool the chance that you're taking any of your basic actions is hugely reduced. And so as a result, we don't often go back to that point of, well, how do we compare, you know, yeah, the 45 or the Colt to the basic action because we compare them to other cards. And that's that's sort of the next stage, I think, that no card actually exists in a vacuum. Cards are normally being compared to other cards as a way of evaluating them. Yeah. So I suppose I have floating in my head for my evaluation a rough idea of how much things cost. And looking at the numbers on a card, I can see if it if it's in line with that or below that curve. Yeah. Uh, I think also something you mentioned there about how useful a card will be or how easy it is to trigger its conditions. I think a lot about utility. I'm really fond of cards that have very broad utility. Yes. And I... I find myself not as keen on cards where they're quite niche effects. There's lots of moving parts that I've got a lineup for it to be useful. Mm, yes. And then I think that then brings me to a the kind of broadening out even further. I think player count actually has a really large impact on how I evaluate cards. And broadly speaking, because I play in normally solo, my evaluation of cards is always slanted towards solo and I don't realise how much of a slant I'm putting on cards until I go and play multiplayer and I see people playing cards. I think, why are you playing that? And then realising, <laughs> okay, well, that, that card actually does have a use here, but you maybe need a couple of other players to give you that leeway to allow a card to be used in that in that way, say. Yeah, so there's something about the investigator, there's something about multiplayer or solo, and then also there's probably something about the numbers in there for me. So what about things like static boosts, Frank? Yeah, what about them? <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good question because this, I think, leads to what's the point in having different types of cards and evaluating cards for different things, which to me is all about how do you win the game? And you win the game normally by passing tests. Yeah, There are some exceptions, obviously, some investigators who want to be testless. But broadly speaking, you need to achieve some kind of goal, which is normally to do with the act. Or, as I say that, if you're playing something like um, No Test Preston, which Scott from the Mythos Busters has been working on for quite a long time. Cool deck, Scott. It's the only time you're ever going to get a compliment from me. (laughs) The whole aim with the cards in that deck is about removing the test element from the game. Yes. realizing that if you can pay to remove tests, that in itself is a way of passing tests because you don't ever take tests. So yeah, so to loop all the way back around to what you were saying, something like a static boost to me is a way of passing tests. It's it's the equivalent of having multiple icons committed over a series of turns. It increases your reliability or your consistency in passing tests, mm. really. Mm. And I think I've broadly speaking, being someone who committed cards to pass tests. Yeah. And certainly in the early stages of the game where you have the double icon neutral skills, you can be throwing those cards in. They give you a pretty reliable boost and they also replace themselves. So it gives you a nice flow of playing. But that's just one way of playing the game. Changing your stats that they're all higher in a kind of dark horse or uh, crystalline elder sign way so that you just boost all your stats can be really useful as well. 
Or if you're a, an investigator who has one stat that's important, being able to boost that up to obscene levels is particularly valuable. Yeah, yeah. And you'd see that maybe more in a multiplayer game or mm-hmm. potentially with a mystic who can use their willpower for lots of stuff. Yeah. I think the other thing you probably see it in is on higher difficulties, that on higher difficulties, the shift from taking, you shift away from taking speculative tests towards trying to make sure that when you take tests, you're giving yourself the best possible chance. Yeah. Trying to pick and choose your tests a little bit more reliably. So you might then be doing a combination of committing cards, only taking tests as, as much as you can with your good stats, and then also having built in some kind of a boost as well. It was interesting to note in Circle Undone how popular the tarot cards were for higher difficulties because it was a way of having a reliable bonus boost for your main stat. So if you're a fighter, you can get up to five or six with a beat cop and whatever else. And then you've got the bonus from a weapon and it just puts you at this like reliable high number over the threshold that you're testing because you can't rely on being four up is enough. So that's then another uh, vector for it evaluating cards what difficulty are you playing on yes i mean that as you say that's the biggest change i've noticed when i play on hard and above Mm. just you need to be selective in what you're committing to tests and which tests you're hoping to pass and those those big numbers to boost up your skill become a lot more useful then because there's some far harsher tokens in the bag Mm. yes you might have token effects that are just auto-fail effects or that just keep scaling as a scenario goes on because we often talk about hard saying well there's a minus five instead of a minus four but then often the skull is uncapped in hard yeah so if it has some effect that's you know number of locations you are away from the start that just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and doesn't stop it doesn't get to minus four and well the other thing is you often see tokens in hard which are the equivalent in easy is when you fail a test (laughs) and then it happens regardless in hard that yes. really boosts, in my opinion, uh, as you say, the value of Tesla's cards. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, even if you're six, seven, eight level intellect and you're investigating a, a low shroud location, you can still pull, mm-hmm. pull one of those tokens. So maybe actually working a hunch becomes a lot more uh, appealing at that level. And then if your whole deck is predicated around either not taking tests or really boosting that then changes the value for me as well around drawing cards and making sure that your deck is tight enough to do what it needs to do. You know, there's less room, I would say, for kind of chaff or for cards that you want to try out and see if there's space for them to work. You need your deck to be a really tight engine that knows what it's doing. And yeah, some of the probably worst experiences I've had playing hard are when I've built a deck without really thinking too much about it and someone at the table has said, oh, hey, should we just play hard instead? And I've gone, okay. <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking already, like, you know, I thought this deck would probably be fine, but when it gets really put through the ringer in that way, it's a lot harder to to cope. Maybe, you know, maybe that's a flaw in my deck building that I just need to build better decks. Generally. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, it certainly feels like it's um, it's not just that. It's that the way that hard will push you is it'll really find the holes in your deck and, and squeeze them. So we've mentioned testlessness. You've mentioned about static boosts, which is maybe around adding a kind of consistency to passing tests. I think the other thing that we often look for in cards, you also alluded to it, is acceleration. Yeah. So a card like deduction or vicious blow, adding the equivalent of a a second's test worth of result to one test. And then, you know, most weapons and some spells will also feed into that. I think we recently announced Followed, and that was a card that gave you clue acceleration, but in quite a complicated way. It did, yeah. (laughs) Comparing it to Eavesdrop was really intriguing because Eavesdrop requires an exhausted enemy at your location and Followed requires a damaged enemy or an enemy at your location. So... In theory, you could play followed without any other actions around it. You play followed and maybe elusive away or something like that in the way that with eavesdrop, you do need to have exhausted an enemy. I guess this this is connected to what I would call compression. Mm -hmm. Frank, cast your mind back to when we first started talking. Episode one. yeah. Even before then, I think. Maybe even before we decided we were going to do a podcast. Wow, okay. Prehistory. Prehistory, prehistoric. I sent you... 
Will you proofread an article for me that I wrote for yes. the Mythos Busters? Yeah. Remember what that article was about? I think I'm going to guess compression, but I don't, <laughs> I don't remember exactly. I did. I wrote two articles. One was a guide to engagement. Oh, yeah, that was really good. Yeah, It was very good, yes. Um, the other was a guide to, or what did I call it? It was about taunt. Do you remember that? Really? Was taunt, you wrote that article before the podcast? I th- taunt uh, wasn't out then. Maybe they'd announced taunt. Yeah. No, no, maybe that was after. Maybe I wrote the engagement one before the podcast and then taunt okay. after. Let's pretend you wrote it. Anyway, whenever <laughs> I wrote yeah. it, it was a long time yeah. ago. Yeah. But do you remember that article, though? That was about why I always liked Taunt, even though it seemed like it was a really bad card. Yeah, and that's about action compression, right? Exactly, yeah, because it's extra actions when you need them a lot, which is when you've got a lot mm-hmm. of enemies. Yeah. So many questions in the game, the answer is, oh, if only I had a Taunt, you know? There's yeah. so many situations where, you're like, well, we've got loads of enemies and I can do this great play, but I don't have the actions to engage the enemies in order to pull it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was thinking of Taunt recently because of Flamethrower as well. Flamethrower does its damage to enemies engaged with you. Yeah. So you need a way of getting all the enemies at a location on you. Yeah. And engaging enemies, unless you've got a trench knife or a Taunt, means you're getting hit. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Hey, look at me. I've got a Flamethrower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but I, th- I think that really ties into what you said. So compression is a way of multiplying each of your actions you spend doing the thing you want to be doing. Mm-hmm. So a weapon, let's just look at machete. Mm. The reason machete was so good was that it was such a high level of compression. Like a lot of weapons, they limit the extra damage they do by having ammunition or something else. Mm-hmm. Machete was almost always just two damage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, its limitation was one that that players quickly found they could play around. Yes, very easily so. But the reason that card is good is because it gives you a very high level of compression. Every action you spend fighting Mm. does two damage. So you double all of your actions. In one turn, you could do six damage to an enemy rather than three. Yeah. So that's something I've always got in my mind when I'm looking at a card. Mm. I think this is you've made me think in, in terms of cards that provide you an action for free, in air quotes. This is, again, why Shortcut is so powerful mm-hmm. because shortcut is, oh, I spend this card and I move or someone else moves. And the number of applications of Myriad, there's just so much you can do with that card. And particularly you, when you get to situations where taking a move action would eliminate you or taking a move action would give you um, multiple hits or whatever else it is, or taking a move action would mean you'd run out of actions to do whatever you need to do, get to a resign location or get to a location and save a friend. And then you have a card that you're trading in that gives you an action at a time when you really can't afford to spend one of your other actions. Yeah. Very powerful. Or you very yeah. much can't afford the attack of opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think probably for both of us, we're very fond of compression. Yeah. And it's something we really look for. And I think there are other players out there who maybe don't worry about compression as much and look for other things. And so another couple of things I have on my list is the idea of self-sufficiency in cards. So when you say self-sufficient, Frank, do you mean a card is self-sufficient, a card is self-sufficient in itself, or the investigator is self-sufficient, or both? Well, yeah, a good question. I had thought about evaluating cards in terms of the investigator. So some of the cards I put down is something like, say, Dark Horse, which I've mentioned already, where with Dark Horse, you can, depending on the investigator, reliably do anything and kind of wander off and turn your hand to it. And actually, I thought quite a lot about Patrice and self-sufficiency, where you can ask Patrice to help out, and she can normally find a way of doing it. But in you asking me that, I wonder if that's a separate metric for evaluating cards, which is cards that don't require other cards to make them work. So you might say that something like Fire Axe is good, but if you can combine it with Madame Lebranche, that's where it really starts to sing. Yeah. And so at that point, it's not a self-sufficient card because it requires other cards in your deck. Or Dark Horse, of course. Or Dark Horse, yeah, that would be another useful... They, they, You know, at that point, are they almost win more cards that if you're going to go broke with Fire Axe, you may as well include Lebranche for extra resources and Dark Horse to make the most out of being broke. And it starts to become then a suite of cards. I don't know if you'd say that they're not low on the self-sufficiency 
metric because you could still just run Lebranche or Fireaxe or Dark Horse. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's an interesting angle to look at cards because, as we've always said, investigators are the way you look at cards. So if I were to put, say, pickpocketing in Preston, I'm going to need to include lots of other cards to make sure he can evade. Yeah. So it's it's not really a useful include. But then if I include pickpocketing in any of Seth, Skids or Finn, I can probably get value out of that card just because of the fact that they have high agility yeah. and irrespective of anything else. There's an aspect, and we've talked about this before. We did a deck building article for FFG and we, we talked about your deck all pulling in the right direction. Mm, Sometimes yes. you, you see a card... You either see a, a powerful card that doesn't have the other support in the faction, and you think, if, you know, I really want to include that, but it doesn't pull in the same direction as lots of other cards I've got available. Mm. Or potentially yeah. a card goes under the radar until you find out uh, there's some other support has, has, you know, has come out for it in the meantime. You go back and you look at a card and you say, oh, actually, that is really good because of this, mm. this, this that I now have available. Yeah, and you compare cards like, say, uh, Anna Caslow, or I just had thought of another one. Oh, Astounding Revelation. Both of these cards, if you're not including certain other cards in your deck, are really not worth it. Yeah. So they're very unself-sufficient. Uh, that they really require. They're they're pieces that that add to a broader plan that your deck is performing. And if you value evaluate them purely on their own terms, you're you're missing something. I'd say. The final thing I'd want to throw out here in evaluating cards is probably just looking for pure power. And I think this has maybe been floating around in the background about everything we've talked about. If we talk about a card that has really good action compression, to a certain extent, we're talking about it being a powerful card. Yes. And being a card that gives a lot to us. And then I think people do keep an eye out for those cards that feel like uh, bomb cards is also a term used for them. that are Otherwise powerful cards. Win button. Win button cards, yeah. You know... Key of Is as well, people sort of weren't sure about. And then when they saw the power of Key of Is in play, realizing that it's a card that just by itself can take any investigator and turn them into a complete powerhouse. And at that point, you realize that then, yeah, this is a really strong card. Um, some of the big guardian weapons, I'd say, are probably power cards. Yeah, well, you'd certainly look at them and say, like, Lightning Gun is a huge level of compression. Yeah. Even if it's limited by by ammo, you know you can you can get more ammo ultimately. And I wonder where where would you say that the permanent talents fit into this streetwise and higher ed? Well, this is an interesting one. So so when you said power and you talked about action compression, mm. you know you, you're drawn to the big effects. So finding lots of clues in an action. So decipher reality or dealing lots of damage in an action. So you know vicious blow level two or, or um, uh, lightning gun, like you say. But we sometimes aren't drawn in the same way to those cards which are are really consistent, mm-hmm. which give us uh, a very good base level of efficiency. And I think that's where, I mean, people have always said higher education has been really good, but it doesn't have, it's not that same level of showiness as a lightning gun, is it? No, no. And same with Streetwise. It's just such a consistent level of boost it gives you. You know, you could be using those cards every single turn, which is what yeah. makes that permanent keyword so powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. It's there from turn one. Yeah. It can't leave play. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just engaged. And, I mean, it is a self-sufficient card as well. You can play scenarios with Streetwise in particular, where you've got a way of dealing with enemies and a way of getting clues. You may as well fill the rest of your deck with economy and you're good to go. Yeah, and, and just... Uh, Preston with Streetwise is so good. Yeah. Because he, yeah. you know, he just picks whatever stats he wants to boost in a particular turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're power in a, in a different way. They're not power in kind of big splashy effects, are they? They're power because of their consistency and because of their, I suppose, accessibility that they're available from the off. It's a different kind of power. So hopefully this has maybe started a conversation around evaluating cards. I don't know if there's a way to conclude this because... It feels it's a little bit like uh, sort of world theology and realizing that maybe different religions are all ways to talking about the same thing. Just realizing I'm probably alienating a whole bunch of listeners. <laughs> that idea of um, 
you know, uh, the divine being a diamond and you can look at it from different angles and see different things and it refracts the light differently. And I think of cards a little bit like that. Some Sometimes you look at a card and say, well, I really love this card. It's great for X, Y, and Z. And then someone else will say, are you crazy? This card is dreadful in Investigator B. And you think, but I wasn't talking about in Investigator B or whatever else it was. It's part of the conversations I think I really enjoy about the game. I think, Peter, the way we talk about cards has shifted to being where does this fit rather than is it good? Yeah, yeah. And trying to find homes for cards and saying, you know, what's the optimum place to include this card to make it sing? Well, it, it's a really difficult conversation to have. <laughs> as as the number of investigators continues to increase, there's never going to be fewer <laughs> investigators. But, it, yeah. you know, you could look at a card and and say, well, this is really bad in most of the... Uh, most of the investigators who can take it. But actually, you know, two of them, they love it. Absolutely love yeah. it. It's really, really good in them. And is that a good card or a bad card because of it? Yes, yeah. And it, yeah, does good card, capital G, capital C, mean card that can be used in every single investigator who can take it? Or does it mean... Very good where you can. Really potent for certain people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some of the Survivor core set cards, like Survival Instinct 2 and Close Call... Uh, Survivor Instinct 2 came out in Dunwich, but Close Call as well. These are cards that, broadly speaking, people weren't that interested in. And then playing Silas solo. I love those cards. Yeah. They were so handy. And Rita as well gave a new home for those cards. And, you know, I think in most conversations, people would say, oh, I haven't touched them or, uh, you know, never really got it to work, blah, blah, blah. And then all it takes is for that particular investigator and that particular setup. And I go, this is a really useful card. It, it it applies more so in Arkham than it has in, in many other card games that I've played. Yes, yeah. Such a huge level of personality in the individual investigators. Yes, and the meta I'm playing in is, is with me. Yes. It's not that I'm having to play every day with the other people who are having the conversations. And if I don't get on board with what the meta is, I'm going to suffer. In In Arkham, if I say I'm really enjoying this card and it's really good, People can say, well, I've tried it and it hasn't been good for me, but there are so many factors that means that it might not have worked for them. And it's not like we've been playing the same scenario with the same token pulls against each other or whatever else it is. Yeah, We don't need to worry about that. Crazy, eh? Well, speaking of cards that are good in different investigators, mm. let's jump, the segue. jump on to our competition. So as I said at the top of the episode, the competition was to design a card for a faction, doesn't matter which, that would particularly work well with the investigator of that faction from the Forgotten Age. The prize is the Forgotten Age Deluxe and all six Mythos packs. Thanks again, Vase. And this was an awesome competition because we got 85 entries. And I just wanted to shout that out because I thought it was incredible we got so many entries. Really, really fun. Some people sent in more than one, which was allowed. We've normally counted the first three, if you sent more than three. And yeah, it's just been it's been actually a really fascinating pro- process to write up all the cards so that we had them all on a spreadsheet. We'll put them in the notes so that you can check out the cards if you want to. We've Some people sent in the cards designed as cards themselves, and a lot of people just sent in the text. And for the record, that hasn't decided us on whether or not we would score a card highly or not yeah what what were your headline thoughts looking through this list peter oh man it was it was really interesting i, I guess there's a few things i was looking for mm-hmm. chiefly i was looking at cards that would be okay in their faction but had an additional benefit from being paired with the appropriate forgotten age investigator mm-hmm. so if you, uh, we, there was a few cards which were which were really good with their chosen investigator but probably wouldn't be played elsewhere which it, uh, you know, which wasn't that didn't quite set me alight, but there were quite a few where there was a good thematic and mechanical link. I, I've always liked cards which have a good mechanical way of representing the theme as well, and we even had some cards which did both of those things and then also linked thematically to the Forgotten Age cycle. Mm, yeah. So it was it was a there was a really impressive selection of cards, and I was kind of overwhelmed by how many there were to go through. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There was. A couple of themes I really saw coming up, which I really enjoyed. So you had like the Leo theme of 
either allies or ally related cards and we saw quite a few local guides or local in word local or guide or exploration quite a few small allies that maybe did something when they came into play so a way of playing off your deck a couple of different designs one ally when you played it you got to search for another ally there was another ally that you could essentially feed all your other allies to and that ally got stronger and stronger which was i thought a really nice design and gave you a boost as you added different allies to it it was i think that idea of like pulling in the local people and getting you to help out and then the other thing i saw for leo which i really liked was either events or skills that keyed off how many allies you had in play or a particular ally in play and you'd get maybe more combat and more damage based on allies so that it felt really nice as a way of you know most guardians will probably want to run an ally or maybe a couple but leo really wants to run allies so it felt really nice for Mateo, there was a lot of uh, religious themes. Maybe yeah. that's why I was making <laughs> uh, theology-related things. Words. The, so there were there were a few things like communion wine or holy water that came up, which I really liked. And then the other thing I noticed that I thought was really intriguing was there was quite a few cards that played off seal, and including some some non-mystic cards with seal, as a way of leaning into if that was his strength or optimizing the chances for for seeing particular tokens because you've sealed other tokens yeah that was really absolutely nice yeah do, do you want to go through all of them or should we should we just start yeah, p- picking just out some cards because there were 83 cards we're definitely not going to go through every card but like i said you'll be able to look at the list yourself and let us know which cards you loved or not peter do you want to highlight a couple of cards in particular that really caught your attention and explain why this is putting evaluating cards into action. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were a couple I wanted to shout out. First up, from Ben, we had the Swiss Army Knife, which was a, yes. a survivor asset. So one cost three XP. And uh, so it had fast uh, action. Discard any cards already attached to the Swiss Army Knife. Attach any card in your discard pile with only one type of skill icon to it. No wild icons. Free trigger. Exhaust Swiss Army Knife to get plus one to the skill that matches the icons on the card attached to Swiss Army Knife. So there's like this idea of you, you're you're fiddling with your Swiss Army Knife to find the right tool, and then yeah. it gives you a stat boost at that point. And then you know in the future, if you need a different stat, you can fold that away and dig out another card. That's really nice. Just yeah. I, I just thought it was a really nice idea. It was a nice transference of uh, the mechanic to theme. Uh, sorry, the other way around, <laughs> theme to mechanic. Yeah, it was sort of it's slightly fiddly to read, and that kind of <laughs> yeah. sums up the idea of what it's like. And you can imagine the the Calvin player kind of t- quickly going, "Hang on a second, I need to get this card out and put an agility icon under here." And da, 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 da. yeah, I like that as well. And then the other one I really wanted to shout out is this is from uh, Juicy Pecker, mm-hmm. and it is Holy Communion. This is a three cost event, and it has fast play only during the Mythos phase. Before players draw any encounter cards, for the duration of the Mythos phase, each investigator at your location gets plus two willpower for resolving the revelation effects from encounter cards. Heal one horror from each investigator at your location. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, nice. I, I mean, I, I read that as plus two willpower for any tests on treachery cards during the Mythos phase. Yeah, and I just, I, I really liked it. It's, it's a bit like, it's a bit like a guts, but a guts you've committed to everyone else. <laughs> yeah. And then you heal the horror, or or a, or a fearless, I guess, you commit to everyone else, although it does cost three willpower. I think three is like, that's really good costing for it. Three cost event should be feel quite big. Yeah. You know, like I've got a plan or Storm of Spirits, it should have kind of a big splashy effect. And this does, right? Three cost to give up to four players plus two willpower and heal four horror. Yeah. Kind of. Kind of cool. And I liked, I, yeah. I just thought, again, it's a really good mechanical representation of the theme of the card, you know, Holy Communion. The fact that, it, mm. you know, you could build a support mystic and have this in. I remember we talked a few weeks ago with Stephen Woolley and he was talking about his scenario that he would he would design and he wanted this feeling of loneliness and isolation so there'd be some mechanic where investigators would get split up from each other or be forced to be apart from one another. Mm, yeah. uh, and this, you know, this, is, this feels good. So if you're all together, ready to support each other, then you can have the Holy Communion and it lends you some collective strength. 
Yeah, I agree. There was another Mateo card I wanted to shout out, which was a Blessing of Hope. This is Peridur's card, and he actually sent in a short story with his cards, which, like, talk about trying to win over the judges. <laughs> Amazing. So cool. So this card, uh, when you reveal it from your deck, it's an asset. You heal one horror from an investigator at your location, and you get to either put the the card in your hand or in your play area. And then as an action, you can shuffle it back into its owner's deck. But if you've sealed a Chaos token, you get to shuffle it into the top nine cards of its owner's deck rather than just uh, shuffling it back in the whole place. So it's a kind of repeatable heal one horror. And I kind of like the idea that whenever it pops up, Mateo just utters a blessing and blesses someone and they heal a horror and then he can either shuffle it away or you know, just sort of maybe have it in hand to commit to someone, something like that. So really nice. Touch. I really like the use of revelation as a beneficial keyword. Mm, yeah, it reads revelation. Yeah, it's it's a bit like the research cards, but you know, n- not quite the same. I thought it was it was a novel mechanic. I'm you know I'm sure we'll, we'll see something like that, a beneficial revelation at some point. Yeah, I think that would be really cool. I mean, we've seen something a little bit like it with the stars are right, haven't we? Where you're choosing to put a positive card in the encounter deck. Maybe we'll see something else. Speaking of using mechanics, interestingly, there was also a Guardian card uh, that Isaac had made that has Peril on it. And it's a Guardian event, Peril, deal 10 damage per investigator, it says, to yourself, other investigators and their allies. Damage dealt this way may be assigned freely by the caster of this card. For the remainder of the scenario, you have a base skill of six in all skills. So you can just kill a load of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Kill a load of stuff. Set yourself up to be able to take 10 damage so that you're still alive. Kill a load of stuff. And then your stats are six for the rest of the scenario. And I love the the, the, the phrasing necessary sacrifice. There's just something so Leo about that. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that it's got peril on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't tell everyone you're about to do it. Yeah. And and they they can't plead for mercy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, we're not allowed to talk right now. You're all dead. Yeah. I mean, brutal. It's more of a, a troll card than it is a player. And maybe, maybe slightly too powerful. Because I suppose what you can do is do something like delay the inevitable, yeah, yeah, and have that ready and just abuse it. So yeah, but it made me laugh. There's actually there was a funny... couple I wanted to mention. I think there was two called the same thing, which had a very similar mm-hmm. effect. Self self sacrifice, yeah, and there, uh, but I like them both. <laughs> there was a couple of Calvin cards which had similar effects, which I I I really liked. One from mm. Pete, which was called Left Behind. Uh, which is play only during a scenario that has a resign ability in play. All investigators other than you immediately resign. You are defeated and you take a mental and physical trauma. And then it's also worth a victory point. Nice. It's like a reverse. uh, I'm out of here. Yeah. Wow. That's quite a cool way of generating XP as a survivor as well. You know, the the cost is pretty, pretty beefy to trauma. Yeah. And then we also got a card from Andy called Self-Sacrifice which was play mm. only if there was a scenario card with the resign effect in play. If it is your turn and your turn, each other investigator may immediately resign and you receive one trauma. So it, it, it was a similar-ish effect, although Pete's card gives you a victory yeah. point as well, which, which I quite like. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, with Andy's, you're still in play. So if you think you can finish the scenario by yourself, yeah. you can like get everyone else out of there and then you can work on maybe doing the last hit of damage to an enemy or... Yeah. Or whatever it is. But there's some scenarios or, where you imagine like Doom of the Etsley. You yeah. know, Calvin just, right, you all get out of here. I'm going to stay here. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I quite yeah. like that. That's really nice. That's a really nice touch. Yeah. There's another Calvin card that also I thought, thought might work quite nicely with Mateo, which is Desperate Prayer. This is uh, by a chap called Ben. And this is a skill card, level three, with a wild icon says, commit only to a skill test you're performing. Reveal tokens until you reveal Elder Sign or Auto Fail. Resolve that token and ignore all the others. When this test ends, remove Desperate Prayer from the game. So you can commit Desperate Prayer and you're basically gambling on hitting Elder Sign or Auto Fail. But obviously, because it's blessed, Mateo can run it. And that means you can maybe be going Auto Fail fishing because you know you'll pass, which I think is quite nice. Yeah. And then it fits neatly in Calvin for those, like, Hail Mary moments. Although often with Calvin, your Elder Sign isn't going to be strong enough to get you through a test anyway. But, yeah, it's a really nice... So I noted that Desperate Prayer, 
I, I, when we were looking at these, I said, oh, well, this would be really good in Mateo. And then you pointed mm-hmm. out, actually, it's a blessed card. Yeah. So Mateo can take it as well, which I, I really liked. And Mateo loves this as well because he can effectively guarantee an Elder Sign if he hasn't used his ability yet. And then his old sign is giving him an extra action or a card and resources. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so this would this would really fit in with him. It's almost mm-hmm. like a seal of yeah. the elder sign in Matteo. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really nice. And I think where like seal of the elder sign is five XP, but you can commit it to anyone, and this is commit only to a skill test you're performing. So that makes sense that it's lower on the XP. And also, if you've already used Matteo's ability, obviously it it goes down in power as a card because then you've got this 50% chance of hitting a auto fail. And it, it, the thing I do like a lot about this card is that process would be really exciting. It'd be a great thing to watch at the table as you pull yeah. tokens out one by one. No, no, oh, yeah. no, yeah, yeah. no, no. Yes! As you're pleading. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Please no, please no, come on. Yeah, it's a real desperate prayer. It's really That's, nice. That was that was one of my favourites. Really, really liked oh, good. it. Good, good. I thought so thought it was nice too so you mentioned as well i hadn't put traits i made a couple of necessary sacrifices i didn't put traits into this document and i didn't put slots into this document just because there was so much information to put in and i needed to make some decision on what i would would cut out so i didn't have columns for those because there was so many cards to put in so yeah sorry about that if you're looking at this document down the line and wondering how a card would work so, just a couple more shout-outs. I know we've, we've gone through this a lot, but let's have mm. a look. I think we have to, just because of how many entries there were. unbelievable. <laughs> it's the biggest response yeah. we've had to any of our competitions. Really, really fantastic. Okay, I'll, I'll do one more, and then you can do one more. Sure. Brilliant. Yeah. Right, so the other one, I really want to shout-out <laughs> Glyn, playing to the judges here, obviously, because it's a oh, quote. Classic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, of course. Uh, this is a survivor skill, and it has uh, max one commit to any type of skill test you are attempting. If you would fail this test, forced, either take X damage or X horror, where X is the amount you would fail by, then you automatically pass this test, uh, even if you've drawn the order fail. If the above effect was not triggered, shuffle this card back into your deck. So... This is, I mean, I think this is really powerful. He hasn't put an XP on it, but I would probably expect to see some level of XP on this card. Just mm-hmm. because, well, I mean, to limit it out of other factions, because if Tommy can take this, you know, he he loves it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah that's it's true. like killing killing his own assets and getting money back from it. Mm-hmm. But in Calvin, it's really good. because it's, it's got a dual benefit that it almost like, the more you are below the value, the more you get boosted to your, the bigger boost you get to your stat when you take the damage or the horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I just, I think it, I think it's good. I like it. Very thematic for Calvin. Yeah, and it's a way of sometimes as Calvin early game, you're actually looking for sources of damage. You are indeed horror. exactly yes. And if you've drawn a rotting remains and what you really need is some damage, it's really frustrating because <laughs> you're like, I don't need any more willpower or intellect. What I need is some combat and agility. So this is a way of finding another way to take damage. Really really nice so the other card i wanted to just highlight here this is unfortunately one we couldn't consider because it's not for any faction because it's a weakness so shout out to sergey thinking outside of the box he has sent in trypophobia which is a weakness card and he even sent a link of the kind of things that would trigger someone's trypophobia (laughs) if you're anything like me and are made uncomfortable by things with lots of kind of weird things that look like eye holes or holes or dots in them Definitely don't click on the link. It is disgusting and it freaked me out. But the card itself says, when resolving tests involving enemies with more than two eyes, use card art for reference, apply grim rule if uncertain, treat each of these enemies as if they have plus one attack and plus one evade, and it's a double action to discard trypophobia. A very meta card. If you're playing, say, Knight of the Zealot, are there any creatures with more than two eyes? I don't think so. Yeah. Would you get a bonus fighting against Nightgaunts? No eyes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like this, and it, it's almost the kind of weird thing I could see Matt at some point making a reference to the number of eyes something has, especially in the current cycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheap Shot says go for the yeah. eyes, and it's a, the art is just all eyes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's very meta, and... I can see the people who care about the rules finding that very frustrating. <laughs> but it's also one of those cards that 
it feels playful. There's a and, and big knowing. section in the FAQ for numbers of eyes of ambiguous-eyed yeah. monsters. <laughs> Following creatures. <laughs> yeah. Right, on to our winner, I think. Okay. I just want to say, yet again, thank you to everyone who entered. The quality of entries was so high, and I really enjoyed using this as an opportunity to thinking about how we evaluate cards. What's a good cost or a bad cost for a card? When does a card really sing? When do mechanics and theme really meld? So yeah, it, it's been a fantastic exercise for me. I'm really grateful. Okay, well, sh- shall I read the winner? I'm ready. Okay, this is uh, Listening In from Edward. It is a, a one agility pip skill card, and it's Rogue. Uh, if this skill test is successful during an evasion attempt, the next time this location is success- successfully investigated this turn, that investigate investigator gains one additional clue. Mm-hmm. So this is a bit like a rogue deduction, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, it boosts my chance of succeeding at the evade test and then gives me a bonus to my next investigation at the location. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's two things that I like. It gives me a bonus to my evasion test and gives me a better investigation uh, the next time I do it. I think it's... Yeah. Talk talk me through why you like this card, Frank. The first thing that really stood out for me about this card was the simplicity of the rules. Yeah. It's a simple design card. It's not... There's not too many different things going on. And it immediately felt very thin to me. Yes. It reminded me, and you actually said this to me off air, it reminded me of Hatchet Man. That idea of you, you're probably going to be evading as Finn because you have that bonus evade and you want your evasion to help you with tempo, to help you with progress. So anything that you can throw into those evades, whether that's icons that get you things or maybe doing succeed by two or even pickpocketing is great. And then also then saying, right, I'm going to evade this enemy. I just need to get these clues and leave this location. This is a way of feeding into that. So it's sort of clue acceleration but in Rogue, uh, I like that. Yeah, and I could even see this, an upgraded version of this, which has additional icons and gains you further additional clues. That yeah, feels like a great two, a two experience listening in. It's two agility yeah. and you gain two additional clues to sort of match deduction yeah. level two. One of the things I like about it is in Finn, you have really have to use your out-of-action slots to gain clue acceleration. Mm-hmm. There's a few cards yeah. like Lock... Well, Lockpicks is a stat boost for clues. Lola... Mm-hmm. Uh, is a, a, again a stat boost, but also she can buy clues, which is good. But neither mm. like pump up the number of clues you get per action. So this fills a real hole that Finn has that he wants to have filled, but with a limitation that's very Finnish. <laughs> if you see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It makes me think, obviously, of eavesdrop as well, which we've mentioned this episode. It's it's like a riff on eavesdrop, yeah. and I think offered in a really neat way. So yeah, I re- I really like that as well as a as a detail. And then I I thought as well this idea that the next time this location is successfully investigated this turn, it's not the next time a clue is discovered this turn, you gain an additional clue. So it also encourages investigation, which is something Finn likes to do. Uh, I thought you could really abuse this card if it just said the next time a, a clue is discovered from this location because you could play listening in and then play intel report and get two clues and that feels too easy so it's this idea that you would then you need to stick around and do a bit of investigating which is exactly what you're doing with the listening yeah. in you're dodging an enemy and then tailing them and, and having a yeah. listen That's and really you can nice. even do stuff like you could you could for this the second investigation or the investigation you could commit a, mm. the deduction to that test you get, get three clues, clues yeah. or, or even put a double or nothing in uh, mm. for, for four clues a basic at a basic level or you know even more if you're combining it with other clue acceleration so yeah. th- there's there's potential there for to build some more stuff into your deck to take advantage of it mm, absolutely yeah the other thing i thought because it says this turn i did think about swift reflexes and quick thinking i think those extra actions treat it as though it's your turn okay so i was thinking about ways of you know if you were able to take an action out of sequence in someone else's turn yeah. Could you give them the bonus clue? But I don't think that works. I might be wrong. But that could be... Maybe the level two version would also say successfully investigated this phase. Yeah, potentially, yes. And that would open it up for multiplayer as well, that it would allow another investigator to scoot scoot in and investigate and get the clues. I'm, I'm sure there's ways you could take advantage of it, especially with Ursula, potentially, if she's being shortcutted around the place. 
Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pathfinder shortcut are both her turn. Yeah, but if someone else shortcuts, someone else shortcuts yeah. her. Yeah, maybe you run that in Finn and push Ursula into the location you just evaded an enemy in. It's not like a big showy effect, is it? It's just a. It's it's a really no. neat, nice implementation of something that I think Finn could really do with, but also would fit well in a number of other rogue investigators. Yeah, yeah. I think what it illustrates as well for us and how we evaluate cards is that it's not about being wowed and blown away by effects. Often it's about the simpler effects that really fit with an investigator. And it seems that it got the cogs whirring for both of us. We both were like, oh, and you could do this as well. And how about if I did this? And that idea of a card being evaluated for inspiration is quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So congratulations, Edward. Send us an email with your details and we'll get things over to you. Thanks again to everyone who ended because we had a really, really good time reading through uh, all of the entries we had. Yes, thank you very much indeed. So if you want to get in touch with us about anything, we're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. We're drawn to the flame on Twitter and Facebook. We're also drawn to the flame on Patreon. You can come and talk to us about these cards or any other cards on our Discord. And we're drawn to the flame on Design by Humans. If you want a t-shirt, a mug, a jumper, maybe a hoodie, check them out. Peter, how can people get in touch? I am United everywhere. That's U-N-I-T-L-E-D. I'm on Twitter and Reddit and Discord and everywhere. So say hello. How about you, Frank? I'm F-B on Twitter. That's E-P-H underscore B-E-E. And F-E-B on Instagram. That's E-P-H-Y-B-E-E. You can talk to me on either place. And I'm also around the places, Zooey Glass or Zozo. Thanks very much Thank for you. listening. Hi again, it's Frank here. You thought that was the end, but it's not quite the end. And here's why. Peter and I did our judging and we very happily decided on listening in Edward's excellent card. Thanks again, Edward. And I went back to Edward's email with a sinking feeling as I thought, I just have this tiny doubt that maybe he said... Just entering the competition to support the podcast, definitely don't want the prize. And I was right. So, Edward said he did. He wanted to send in his excellent cards, he wanted to take part, but he did not want to be included in the judging. And Mr Trigger Happy over here went and added his cards to the spreadsheet, ignoring his email, ignoring his stated wishes... And then Peter and I talked about the cards and judged him as the winner. And I thought, yeah, it won't be the same person who said, don't include me for the judging. It was. Who knew? Anyway, so what I decided to do, rather than say there's no winner, is reach out to Edward and tell him what's happened. I thought, you know, everything we'd recorded was pretty decent. So I sent Edward a message and said, would you mind looking at the spreadsheet and picking your winner? And we'll give the prize to your winner instead. And he said, I would love to. And what he's produced for me is a brilliant sheet, which includes not just his winner, but his long list, his short list, and then his finalists with write-ups about his finalists, which is just incredible, above and beyond the call of duty. So thank you so much, Edward, particularly as you're not winning anything because you didn't win any prizes. You've actually been given work for entering the competition, which is not really how it works, is it? So yeah, just want to shout out again how grateful we are for you being up for it. And hopefully this is a fun twist in the judging story, maybe. So yeah, let's take a look at this list. First of all, he did a long list. And his question when he did the long list was, does the card make me think of a Forgotten Age investigator? Or particularly the Forgotten Age investigator for the class. It looks like he's done a little ranking score. I'm not going to read all of these out. There were 36 that he... No, 35 that he recorded here. So he went through the 85 entries. He picked 35 that he was like, yep, they definitely make me think of the appropriate Forgotten Age investigator, which was really the criterion by which we were judging the, the competition, wasn't it? So a good way to start, definitely. From that long list, he then whittled down to a 22-person shortlist. And here the question he put was, would I be excited to include the card in a Forgotten Age Investigator deck? So he's taken that much longer list, he's whittled it down, and he's tried to think about, does that really make me think, oh yeah, that's a really good fit. And it looks from this list that the ones that seem to be jumping out 
some seeker cards. No, actually only a few psychic, quite a few rogues though. It looks like seven rogue cards and seven guardian cards. So some of those things that we mentioned in the episode, that idea of a guardian card being around, maybe getting uh, more damage based off the allies you have, or a rogue card being about playing with illicit or messing with that, that seems to have really caught Edward's eye as well, that you'd be excited to include illicit card based on the fact that you're playing Finn and Finn loves illicit. And he's ended up with 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 finalists. And here the question was, which ideas do I find most interesting for each class? So this is where it gets incredibly personal. And it's really just about what gets him excited. So in third place for Edward... And this is third place for the competition. I'm afraid third and second place don't win anything, but you're still getting his special shout out. Third place, Patrick O'Malley with his card, That Reminds Me. This is a Seeker card. I don't think we read it out in the episode. It's an event with one intellect icon, costs, I think, one. It says, fast, after you successfully investigate two separate locations in the same turn, discover an extra clue at either location. I remember looking at this one and thinking, yeah, it's pretty nice. It's very Ursula, isn't it? It's that idea that probably Ursula is moving around from place to place. And as she gets clues from place to place, it gives her a bit of clue acceleration that's not just deduction or fingerprint kit, something like that. Edward's really nice comment here is that this card screams Ursula, nailing her mechanics and what she wants to be doing. I also really like that both the title and mechanics evoke connecting clues in different locations, making them more than the sum of their parts. It's exactly right. That idea of that reminds me that you go to one location and grab a clue, go to a second location, grab a clue there, and then grab a clue from the previous location. It's like, oh yeah, of course, this is all making sense. It's very Ursula, isn't it? And you could see other Seekers running it, but there'll probably be far fewer times when another Seeker is running it. They might be getting a couple of clues, moving on, grabbing one last clue, but it would be far more limited. So yeah, a great shout in third place. In second place is a card by Dan, who also goes by Solar J, and that is The Darkness Within. This is a survivor card. It's a, an event. It has a willpower and wild icons, and it reads fast. Play when you're assigned damage and or horror that would defeat you. Move all damage and horror that would be taken onto this card and put the darkness within to play as an asset. If there are ever no tokens on this card, discard it. And then there's a free effect to ex exhaust the darkness within and move one damage and or horror to an ally or another investigator at your location. Edward writes, well, this looks familiar, similar to another card that was entered by somebody I forget who. Uh, I think he means himself but I could be wrong there. And I think it's a really Calvin card. We didn't talk too much in this episode about what makes Calvin Calvin. And, you know, Calvin isn't just Tommy in Survivor. Calvin is also about pushing his own abilities to the brink and about gaining strength from weakness. So in theory for the Darkness Within to get sort of a really good impact, you maybe want to take a three damage, three horror hit and pile all of that on the Darkness Within. And then you could slowly start farming it out. I, I think that's kind of nice. I think there was a downside to the Darkness Within, but my notes here don't say it. It might have been truncated when it moved from my sheet to Edward's sheet. But yeah, really nice. And shout out to Dan. Really cool card. And then in first place, what you've all been waiting for if you've listened to this bonus part, Edward's top choice here was a card by James Phillips, and that is entitled Friend in Need. Again, I don't think we mentioned this in the episode. There was so much to cover. But James actually sent in five cards and he decided to do multi-class cards, filling in the gaps for multi-class that we didn't see in the Circle Undone. So he did combinations that didn't appear otherwise. So I think there was a Rogue Seeker. There was maybe a Mystic Survivor. Is that right? Have we had a Mystic Survivor card? No, I don't think so. Anyway, there was a whole range of them. They were really nicely designed. They were really interesting. They've clearly caught Edward's eye. Friend in Need is a Guardian slash Survivor card. It's an event with a willpower and combat icons. And it reads, move any amount of damage and or horror between your investigator and allies you control. Now, this works really nicely because obviously it's a nice Leo card if you're desperately trying to move damage off a beat cop to use more beat cop pings or desperately trying to move horror off Leo onto one of your allies particularly if you've taken direct horror 
And then it's a really nice card for Calvin. If you're getting worried about Calvin's stats, you want to maybe do a little bit of resetting. Uh-oh, horror's getting too high. I might end up with trauma here if I'm not careful. So you do a bit of a rejig there. So you can see how as a Guardian Survivor card, it appeals to both Leo and Calvin, which I really like. And Edward adds the other characters that like it are probably Tommy, who's Guardian Survivor, Yorick, who's Survivor Guardian, and Pete to protect Duke. So it really fits nicely, broadly speaking, into the classes that it's occupying. And the idea, I actually quite like the ambiguity of the title, Friend in Need, that are you the investigator, the friend in need, and you're helping an ally? Or are you relying on your ally who's your friend in need? Big change of information here. We thought Edward had won, but in fact, it's James. He goes by Mighty Jim on the Discord. Give him a shout out. And... James, send us an email if we don't email you sooner and we'll sort out sending you the Forgotten Age. If you decide you don't want the prize as well, we're definitely not giving you the judging uh, responsibility as well because this is getting out of hand. But hopefully you're happy with it or you can find a good home for it. Thanks very much for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Bye. Bye.